Hollywood, no doubt, has had an influence on at least the image of the motorcycle in the public's eye. As far back as 1953, we had The Wild One, starring Marlon Brando. Then in 1963, The Great Escape with Steve McQueen. And although that one's not a motorcycle movie per se, it has the famous motorcycle escape scene in which Steve McQueen is supposedly riding this motorcycle as it jumps over a fence. It turns out he, he actually wasn't, but he did get the credit for it. And everyone says Steve McQueen was, you know, he's the coolest guy to ever ride a bike. 1969, we have Easy Rider with Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda, and Jack Nicholson riding those stretched out choppers across America. And then there's the movies that were made for the motorcyclists, like the famous On Any Sunday, a great flick, or the Long Way Round series. And in 2013, there was a release of Why We Ride. But for adventure motorcycling, the 2004 release of Long Way Round seems to epitomize what adventure motorcycling is all about to many people, and it's talked about around many campfires. But it wasn't the first. No, probably the original adventure motorcycling movie was made almost by accident, by an eclectic group of underprepared Brits that schemed up a plan to set a world record, a Guinness Book world record, as they found the longest land route that they would ride on their motorcycles in the shortest period of time. Well, one big thing they overlooked, among many others, for this trip was that they were supposed to contact the Guinness Book of World Records before they left. They didn't, so the trip was null and void. But they did film it, and they called it Mondo Enduro. Calling the trip Mondo Enduro, our grandiose scheme was to establish a record for motorcycling around the world using the longest possible land route in the shortest possible time. And they made a film, and eventually it was shown on the Discovery Channel network. We filmed the whole trip ourselves on a high 8 camera and even an old Super 8 Cine camera. And day by day, mile by mile, we recorded what happened in our diary. And who was responsible for filming and ultimately getting this Mondo Enduro on the Discovery Channel? Well, my name's Austin Vince. And I teach maths at Mill Hill School in North London. On this show, we have the producer and organizer extraordinaire of Mondo Enduro, Austin Vince. Austin's going to tell us what went wrong and, well, what went wrong. And we're also going to talk with Dylan Jones from the Yamaha Off-Road Experience, who's going to give us some off-road riding tips for our adventure bikes. I'm Jim Martin. Stay with us. Listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hello there. Uh, my name is Austin Vince. I am from Harrow in London, uh, United Kingdom. I'm a, uh, a math teacher and I'm 48 years old. With so many things I wanted to ask, we had to start somewhere. So we got right into it and I had to ask him how did Mondo Enduro get started? How do these great plans that people do, these huge trips, how do they get going on it? Where does it come from? Where does the idea come from? When we did this trip called Mondo Enduro in 1995 and tried to make a film about it, when we actually did manage to get the film made back in England, or more accurately, when we managed to get it edited um, uh, and on TV, which I should add, in 1995, when no normal person owned a computer, and nobody could actually edit a program unless they had an editing suite, and that that meant that they actually worked in the television industry. So members of the public like us, who'd been on holiday uh, and had some film and wanted to make a little film, you had to go, cap in hand, to uh, a broadcaster and get them to give you the huge amount of money to book an edit suite and an editor and to turn your footage into a film. And, and, of course, that, that um, elitism is gone now as program-making has become fabulously democratized and everyone can not only edit their own shows but put it up on YouTube and, uh, and let other people enjoy it if, if it's any good. And if it's any good, they can send it to a film festival and they can find out where the film festival is through the Internet and all that stuff. So um, Mono Juro was quite by chance, and it was never meant to be, but it was quite by chance the first adventure motorcycle um, uh, TV show. 
when we did modern Europe, we were the first people to get to Magadan in the far east of Russia, overland from Europe. And, and no one had ever done that. And more importantly, no one had ever heard of Magadan. It's not like Everest, uh, you know, before it was summited. Everybody was trying to do it, but they didn't make it. But, I mean, this is this weird thing that adventure travel had. It had these destinations with these funny roads leading to them that no one has heard of, but which no one had traveled. And, um, and with a good reason, you know, back then in, in 95, the Zilov Gap still existed. And you couldn't drive from one side of Russia to the other without putting your bike your, your car on the, on the train for 400 miles in the middle of Siberia. So when, so when we attempted the Zilov Gap uh, and failed on Modern Enduro, that was, that, wasn't, that was pretty unusual. You know, n- nobody had ever, ever, ever done that or tried to do that. Certainly no Englishman and certainly nobody from the English-speaking world. So when that ended up in a film, uh, that was kind of cool. Uh, but the other thing was is that Wonder Enduro came out as two one-hour shows on Discovery in Europe. Uh, and, of course, at Discovery, we had to, you know, we had to fight so hard for them to accept it with the legendary line. But we managed to get through to someone, and we said, look, we've motorcycled around the world, and we've got this film, and we rode from London to this place called Magadan, then from Alaska to the bottom of Chile, then from um, Cape, you know, South Africa back to London. Um, and we said no one's ever done that before. Um, because no one had ever crossed the Soviet Union before. Um, and we did it on our own with just a bunch of mates on cheap second-hand little bikes. And the woman said, well, okay, well, what, why is that interesting? <laughs> and uh, and I, was, I, was, I, I didn't know what to say, because, of course, I'd done it, and it had been interesting. But it suddenly hit me in the face. I thought, oh, my God, you're right. It's not interesting. It's not at all interesting if you, if you didn't do it, if you weren't there. And uh, like all those situations, because I was talking to a fully-fledged TV professional, I assumed they were right and I was wrong. So how do you counter that? What do you say? Why, why is it interesting? Um, it's, it's interesting because on television, there was not in those days, and there probably is, there isn't actually really, because there's, there's not many films like Modern Euro. There are not films of people who are obviously completely incompetent. Uh, attempting to do something which they are clearly not qualified for and uh, and and failing actually <laughs> failing and struggling and uh, but somehow kind of staggering to the end like a drunkard in a, in a marathon or something and um, and I think Monteduro has been well received because people just are just not used to the ordinariness. Of the of the people that are that are in the film, and in this day and age, when when broadcasters are afraid to to show you any kind of factual programming that isn't um, led by a celebrity, a familiar face is the crucial phrase. Wonder Juro is ironically a kind of breath of fresh air, and of course, the punchline is if you've got a two-hour film and you go around the world in 440 days and for you know 44,000 miles with a load of goons who are just smashing in, into things and breaking down and getting punches the whole time, then you, you, you can't go wrong. You know, if you've got from Siberia to Mexico to the jungles to elephants to snake, you know, I mean, that's just, you know, that, that's got to be slightly more interesting than just watching another fake reality show. Can you take us back to before Mondo Enduro, when you, when you came up with this ridiculous idea uh, to take your motorcycle, and a pretty small motorcycle, and, and of course one that wasn't recommended to you as well, and, and do this trip. Can you take us back to that starting point and just give us an idea of what it was like? Oh, it was, it was very simple. Um, it was all driven by my elder brother, Gerald. And as I was coming, coming um, I just got my motorcycle for the first time at university, and it was a crappy MZ125, which was an Eastern, Eastern German motorbike, two-stroke that was available, um, in the 90s, it was it was rubbish, totally total rubbish. It was barely functioned as a motorcycle, and um, uh, and then I was at military academy. And when I came out of that, my brother said to me, "Let's go to Morocco," and he meant on on his bike. So I was a passenger on the back of his FJ 1200, and we went drove it down through Spain, went to Morocco, and came home on holiday for two months. And that was great. Two months, two weeks. That was great fun. And then he said, "Oh, let's go. Um, let's drive around Eastern Europe. The Berlin Wall's just come down, and you don't need visas anymore." 
And if you can remember, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s, you you never met anybody who'd been to Bulgaria or Romania or Czechoslovakia or Poland. Mm-hmm. No, you know, nobody had been on holiday to those countries, and yet alone travelled freely, unescorted in them. So when my brother suggested this to me, I thought, oh, that was amazing idea, that's clever. And uh, and I had my motorbike by then, and we got some buddies together. I was a bit older, I was like 25 or something, 26. And um, so we did this trip around Eastern Europe, just on roads, on our on our street bikes, you know, normal street bikes. And we were struck, not by natural beauty, but by but how phenomenally exciting it was to be in countries that were essentially frozen in time. And it looked like it was 1930, everywhere. And uh, and and that, those days are gone, really. I mean, it, it, only last, it was only like that for about two years before the West, you know, swept in and changed everything. But it was, to give you an idea, everywhere there was absolutely no neon lighting of any kind, only only um, filament bulbs, no strip lighting. Not a single person was wearing anything that was overtly what you might call synthetic fibers. So everybody is dressed in wool, cotton, and leather. Um, or canvas. There's only one kind of car in every country and just about four different colors. And everybody's driving the same car. So you felt like you were at an owner's an owner's convention the whole time on any street. Um, the streets were, um, in every town, almost completely devoid of any kind of shops. Um, and uh, every time you went past the factory, there was smoke coming out of it that was a color you'd never seen before if you lived in Europe. And, I mean, the list goes on, but it was just an incredible cultural smack in the face um, to be in all of these former communist countries. It was so exciting. So, uh, and, and more exciting than anything, would you believe, none of us anticipated this. When we got off the ferry in Hamburg and, and headed the 200 miles to the East German border, which was, you know, in, the, in, the, in this is 1990 we're talking about, and East Germany was still a fully functioning separate country before reunification. Um, we, we just, we, we didn't have any idea what to expect. We just had a single sheet map of the whole of, the whole of Europe, and that was it, uh, on one piece of paper. Not a road book like you get nowadays with, you know, with a spi- spiral-bound atlas, page by page by page. And, uh, and um, it was beyond exciting. But, but the thing that I must get across is how culturally it was shocking. So it was, we were on motorcycles, but that was, they were just the medium. They were just the thing that got us from place to place. And we thought motorcycling was cool, but we realized on that Eastern European trip and backed up by the Moroccan trip that actually it was where you were that was what it was all about and not what you're riding. You know, that's like, you know, the, to a Harley person, that's the big thing, isn't it? You've got to got to be this bike or you know or the classic scene it's oh this is a 1963 triumph dildo or whatever it is you know i realized then in my mid-20s that that the motorcycle was was irrelevant it was the it was the destination and it was the surroundings and it was the experience was was what this was all about and um so when we got back from eastern europe we'd all had our and we did this incredible not incredible we just we just drew a line that made that went into every single country so we came back and we'd been to every single country in, the, in, in Eastern Europe, uh, but failed to get into Albania. That was the only one that we uh, that we got literally turned away from the border, and that was the big one. It's the dusted cherry on the cake was Albania. And uh, so when we came back from that trip, I remember I was on the phone to my brother, and we were kind of literally saying, "Oh, the summer holidays are coming up. Where should we go?" And he said something like, "You know, we should do something bigger. That European trip was three weeks. We should do something that involves us." resigning from our jobs and like takes three months whatever so i said yeah that would be really exciting that would be an amazing project then i said let me ring some other buddies so i rang all these uh, i rang everybody i knew who owned a motorcycle who had a motorcycle license uh you know of my peers and that amount that list was six people because i wasn't you know i wasn't a biking person i wasn't like a child motocross star or i wasn't somebody who had motorcycles in my life at all like some people are lucky enough to have dads who've got motorcycles and get them into it, and that, that wasn't me. So I rang with these six friends who had motorbike licenses, and I said, look, Gerald's got an idea. Let's meet up. And in the middle of England, in this town called Nottingham, that was central for all of us. We were all over the place. We were, you know, this was a combination of friends, school friends, university friends, stuff like that. We were all, you know, and 
let's meet up and uh, see if we can think of something, see if we can talk it out. And all we, all we did was we brought, we brought an atlas with us. That was it. And, of course, this is all before the Internet and everything. So this should, this should be, and it was, it was December 1992. So it was 20, what was that, 22 years ago? And, um, and we were talking immediately about the standard text for all British motorcyclists, which is London to Cape Town, obviously with echoes of Ted Simon. That's because that's how he started his trip, and so and the, you know that first first quarter of his book, the deals with London to Cape Town, is in its way the most exciting part of the book because, of course, he's the most excited. He'd never done anything like that before, and that jumps off the page at you. And we're talking about Cape Town, but we get the other guys kept saying, "Oh, um, so this was the guys I've been around Europe with, plus some other blokes." And the other blokes said, "Oh, what was it? You know, like in Poland? Oh, yeah, we just started talking about that. Oh, it's like in Romania. Oh my God, yeah." And we spent a whole night talking about Eastern Europe. And then somebody said, you know, why don't we try and ride to Japan across Russia? And, and everyone looked at each other because, of course, you have to remember that in Europe in the 80s and 90s, people didn't say that. People didn't imagine. You know, you might as well say, let's ride to the moon or let's ride across the Pacific. You know, it was absolutely unheard of. The suggestion that you can even get into the Soviet Union with your own vehicle, let alone drive all the way across it. And we looked at each other. And we got this. We got the map out, and there was this Trans-Siberian Railway, and it looked like there was a, a red line following it all the way across. And so we said, "Wow!" And then the big thing back then, I remember it really clearly, was, "Oh my God! If we can get to Japan, we'll ride back to the factory where the bikes were made, and we'll get this kind of hero's welcome because we'll be the first people that rode the bikes back over land." that I'd never had before. And we've we fixated on that for ages as a really clever marketing PR idea. Of course, you know, it was irrelevant and nothing nothing of the sort ever happened or anything like that. But but that was our big thing and it was um so then we uh we knew somebody I think somebody had a guidebook uh of of an early, you know the first ever edition Lonely Planet guidebook of um Russia which was really thin, because, of course, that, it just meant Moscow and Leningrad in those days. But they turned it to Vladivostok, and it said, look, you can get a boat from Vladivostok to Japan. So that, that was it. That was the key that unlocked the door. And we, and we said, right, you know, maybe, maybe we can, if we can get to Vladivostok, we can get to Japan, and then we'll get a boat back to England. And then somebody said, and I honestly don't know who it was, well, hang on, if we're in Japan and we've taken three months of work, why don't we get the boat to, to Seattle? or Vancouver, or, or, or Long Beach. And then we could ride across America. And it's like, whoa, we're all like high-fiving each other. Like, that'd be ridiculous. That'd be mad. That'd be like going around the world. And then, and then somebody else said, well, instead of getting the boat to Seattle, why, what could we get a boat to Anchorage? And instead of riding to New York, ride to Buenos Aires. And then everyone said, well, that's got to be possible, apart from the Darien Gap. And somebody said, oh, I know that you... you know, somebody said... You can fly across the Darien Gap. You can book a flight from Panama to Ecuador or something like that. And we said, okay. And then my brother definitely said, look, everyone, if we got as far as Buenos Aires, then in Buenos Aires, it would be madness to get a boat back to London with the bikes on it. We should get a boat to South Africa and then come back over land. And by now we were like, just like looking at each other like, this is insane. This is like... You know, ask, thinking that you can ask out the hottest girl in school to the prom, and she, she's going to say yes, and she's going to say, "All my hot friends want to go out with your friends as well. Can we go as a massive group, please?" You know, this was just, it was just the stupidest um, dreaming. Everyone knew this. This, you know, everyone, I won't say everyone knew it couldn't be done, but everyone knew without saying that no one had ever done anything like that, apart from let's say Ted Simon, but he took four years to do it. We were talking about trying to do it, you know, like as fast as we could, you know, so that we could, we do have to get back to work. We were, we didn't want to hit the road and be travelers. You know, we wanted to just go on holiday for a year or whatever. <laughs> and, and, and so that was it. And that night, it was the, I mean, the first time we talked about it that night, the idea, you know, took root of of what actually became modern Europe. That's what, to me, is one of the most spectacular things about that story is that it, it was just a mad throwaway couple of comments that two and a half years later we embarked on, and now 22 years later somebody's asking me about it from Canada. You know, me and going on holiday with my friends. I mean, it's just mad. Isn't that the essence of adventure? I mean, you guys were unprepared, you were underskilled, you were ill-equipped, and 
you were pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. So, so really what we're talking about is we're talking about a, a, your comfort zone. It's, it's an area that you're familiar with that doesn't seem dangerous or risky or, or out to lunch. And then there's that area on the outside when you have to stretch to go out to the edge of your circle, so to speak, and, and go into the unknown. That was Adventure Motorcycle, exactly what you're doing. I mean, that was it not? Well, interestingly enough, Jim, we didn't think... Although we knew we'd never crossed Russia before and we knew that, we'd, that there was no one else that had who you could ask about it, that's the key thing. So not only was it new, but it was, it was going to stay new until we did it. <laughs> um, I, I can tell you absolutely hand on heart, we never, ever thought it was um, diff- going to be difficult. We just assumed that... Uh, actually, we were so ignorant, Jim, that we didn't even ask the questions that we should have been asking. And despite the fact that we'd done some big road trips before, um, we just did the normal thing. We fixated completely on what are we going to do when our motorbike breaks down, because none of us were mechanics or anything. And we didn't think that the answer to that question is, you will repair it, my son, (laughs) and then you will continue. That's what you're going to do. And it might take you three weeks to repair it or, or three minutes or three hours. But you will repair it. But there was, um, that, was, you know, that, that, that was the simple thing that we should have realized. But it wasn't, um, in, no, in no way did it seem a very big deal. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, we just, wanted to, we just wanted to have some fun. Ignorance is sometimes a seed for for great things. You know, often people will look back yeah. and think, "If I ever, if I knew better, then I, there's no way I would have done it," and and then things would never happen. At what point, or at any point, because I don't, I didn't get that from Mondo Enduro. I remember when, uh, from the movie that there was any point where, uh, well, maybe there was, maybe there's a few points. So maybe I, I'm saying that wrong. At what point did you feel, if you did, that you were way over your head? That wow, like this is something that we didn't expect at all. Oh, only once. And that was in the Zillow Gap, on like the third day of the Zillow Gap. Um, uh, the first two days, we sort of just thought, oh, we'll model through this mud, and a kind of track will appear from somewhere. And some local guys had said there were a couple of trails, and, it, and we'd been, you know, they mined. Oh, you'll be, it'll be all right over there. And they pointed into the distance, and they kind of said, yeah, a thumbs up. It'll be okay down here. And we were kind of slogging with these bikes with bald road tires through these swamps and stuff just through mud up to our axles and knees. And, with the, you know, on the second day of the Love Gap, um, we, we, did, we achieved, all, for all four of us working all day, we achieved a record 800 meters. And it was, uh, and so that was bad, and we had to take the next day off. <laughs> we were so, so totally knackered that we found a, a railwayman's hut next to the Transbury Railway and, 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 and um, took refuge in it. And licked our wounds and tried to, and tried to take stock and, and this whole weird thing of not knowing what on earth was around the corner. So then we did a recce and then it was raining and, and then after another couple of days we moved. You know we were down. We were doing like 10, 15 miles a day on some dirt tracks and stuff. And then one day we got to a, a section that was really badly flooded of the trail, and you couldn't kind of get off the trail and kind of go around it. You were just stuck, and so we were plowing through this mud. The bikes were conking out, and they were, you know, the electrics were getting soaked. And these huge trenches that the Russian military vehicles that had created these trails—they weren't created by local farmers or anything like that. They were created by the Russian military moving armored cars and tanks up and down the border. That's what that's what we were riding along, but we didn't realize. And um, you know, back in the Cold War type thing. And and we went I went into into a trench that was super deep, up to the bottom of the tank and the bike conked out and the others had to get me you know, push it out. And then I went ahead on my own and I saw another trench just the same and the, and you know you know it's like the two the two vehicle tracks make two giant trenches and in between is a kind of ridge or a, mm-hmm. a you know, a lip, like a central a central median. So I thought, I know, I'll be clever. I'll ride down the median, that'll only be a few inches deep instead of driving into the trench like I did last time that cost me dear. So I drove along the median, lost control of the bike immediately because it was just mud and rocks underneath. And the bike fell sideways into the giant trench that was literally four foot deep. And the bike disappeared into it upside down, handlebar first, with the wheels sticking out the top. And I was on my own. And I'd gone ahead to try and kind of like get a report for the others. And I reckon I'd done a mile 
you know what it's like? You get, you know, you start making some progress and you, you think, yeah, this is good. It's going to, it's, it's, it's firming up. And then I ended up in this. And I, and I, and I almost burst into tears. And I, I really remember thinking, and I screamed out, like, you know, and I thought, no, no, no. And I was hysterical because it was totally hopeless. And I, that's when it really hit me. I have no idea how to deal with this. I don't, you know, I've got no training. I can't. And I remember thinking, this is too difficult. We shouldn't be here. We're meant to be on the train, like everyone else is, who's trying to get across this bit of Russia with a vehicle. They book a passage on the train and they put the vehicle in a truck, you know, in a, in a, in a goods wagon, a boxcar. And I, was, and I was completely on my own. And, of course, to say nothing of the fact that now the bike is completely submerged. God knows how much water is in it and all that stuff. And I knew that I'd never had that experience in my life. I didn't know what I was going to do. I remember clearly thinking, that's it. Literally, the bike's ruined. It'll never start again. You know, so I'm going to have to leave it here, walk back to the others, and tell them... I started rehearsing a conversation with the others along the lines of, lads, I've got to go back to England. My bike's ruined. And it was it was that kind of desperately, um, you know, the utter utter impotence that I had. So that was the that was and that and that was a real real low point and uh, uh, and it didn't and it and it stayed bad for for the next kind of week of the Zillow Gap. It didn't get any better really, and eventually after 110 miles that had taken us two weeks, we um, got to a village on the railway and. Hold up in a in a went out of town. Hold up in a in a, a fire break. Do you call them that in the forest? Yeah. yeah, we we hold up in a fire break, and two guys went off to find out about trying to get our bikes on the train. We were exhausted, and the you know the bikes were smashed to bits. We'd left England we, on the original chains and sprockets that the bikes had when we bought them. None of us realised that those wore out, and that they could be changed. We had no idea. I thought they were made of metal. And they lasted forever. And, uh, and so in the, by the little gap, all the bikes had, on a 14-tooth on a, on a front sprocket on a DR350, they all had like four teeth completely missing. The chains were stretched totally. There were no, we had no spares, nothing. And uh, we'd already had some new sprockets made for us back in, in Irkutsk, and that was a huge deal. But we stupidly didn't get new everything. We should have not left there till we got new chains. But we just didn't realise that they that they broke and snapped, and and links snapped, and and rollers snapped off. And you couldn't even on one of the bikes, you couldn't even open the throttle because the chain just dragged over the back sprocket because the teeth were just worn down to stumps. It was it was pathetic. I mean, total the, the whole show ground to a halt, and and we sort of gave up. We didn't know what to do. So we thought, well, we've got it. We can't just, we can't move forward at all. So we got, got our bike spot on the train, and then, um, but first, we managed to make friends with this Siberian gold mine maintenance depot, and they machined us a complete set of front and rear sprockets, sprockets from scratch, from pieces of metal, using our original broken ones as templates for the spline fittings on the drive shafts. They machined brand new front and rear sprockets for all of us. Uh, and repaired the chains as best we could. We didn't have a chain splitting device, you know. Motion Pro make a superb chain splitter. I never even seen one of them. And uh, so we licked our wounds there. The Russians helped us get back on our feet, and we were able to do. We put our bikes on the train to get to the end of the Zillow Gap, and then and then rode up to Magadan. So the road of bones from Yakutsk onwards was a was a was a doddle because it is a road. Everyone wanks off about the road of bones when it's it's a really good dirt road. <laughs> Certainly, you know, compared to being just like sludge, which is what we've been used to. <laughs> so, on this trip, what were the big lessons that you learned? I realize you have tons of lessons you would have learned, obviously, just even saying there about bike repair, things that you didn't anticipate or, or didn't understand at the time. But what were the real big lessons you learned about motorcycle travel? Oh, because unfortunately, there's quite a lot. I think probably the main lesson that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll cheat your question by answering a slightly different question. What have I learned in my entire life about motorcycle travel? Okay. And that is, what I definitely know is, A, you must do it, whoever you are. And B, you must do it, you know, uh, you must do it properly. I don't mean driving from New York to L.A. I mean driving from, you know, Anchorage to Buenos Aires or London to Vladivostok or 
Johannesburg to Peking, or you know, I mean that kind of thing. That's that's something that is such a spectacularly exciting experience that for all humans not to have have done it, who could afford to do it, um, is a crime. It's so much better than anything else I've ever done in my life ever. Um, so that's the main thing I've learned. It must, it, it should be a compulsory part of life's syllabus, and um, sadly for millions of reasons most people won't do it but i'm so I've, I've certainly kind of like dedicated part of my adult life to trying to encourage people to do it because i can't bear um the thought that they won't drink from that cup sort of thing the um the second thing i've definitely learned about motorcycle travel is that it's absolutely fine to set off on your trip with no idea how to do it because you will learn very fast as days go by and you might have some disasters that are self-inflicted or that could have been avoidable but the crucial thing is that you simply relish the disasters and, and, and of course try not to let them <laughs> repeat themselves <laughs> by your own incompetence but but um, you, let, you, you will learn so much so quickly far you will learn far more than you ever do normally in, in normal life, you know, uh, if, whatever your job is, if you're a teacher or an engineer or a chef or you run a business or whatever, you're always learning something. Every day you learn something. But when you start off on that big round-the-world motorcycle trip, you, you're learning you're learning something every hour. And you come back feeling like tingling with this colossal apprenticeship that you've put yourself through, which by the very fact that you returned successfully, you passed it. You passed it with, a, with an A grade. And that's incredibly empowering because your self-confidence is an enormous amount of good. And, and you kind of, for a couple of you know, weeks after you get back, you walked all. Riding through um, Russia, you were going to places that were politically inaccessible up until you know, not long before you went. Do you feel there's still places to have real adventure like that in the world? I mean, I'm not saying going to places that, that you're not allowed into, but I'm saying there was a certain set of circumstances that came together. That the timing was perfect. Your age was perfect. Your, your idea was perfect at the time to have the experience you did. Do you think there's still that caliber of adventure available to people nowadays? Yeah, absolutely, because, because the landscape, uh, that's the wrong word, but because the, the, the backdrop has changed. Um, so much with the advent of, for example, the internet and most, more specifically GPS technology, what um, people are attempting things now, uh, which were uh, which were literally impossible back in 1995. So, for example, in uh, we just did a trip called Modo Sahara in in Mauritania, where we were driving into the empty quarter of the Sahara, digging up food and fuel that had been buried for us. Um, by uh, a Land Rover, you know, a few weeks beforehand, using GPS coordinates um, for us to home in on the on the on the supply dumps. Now that you, that couldn't exist 20 years ago, so that's kind of like a new a new direction that, that a certain kind of adventure motorcycling is going in. There's no doubt in my mind that because of the weird way that the wheel of political life changes, uh, getting into like those New Zealand people recently got into North Korea. Um, and rode around there. They had a guide, but still, they still got to get in there and, and see an unusual country. There's plenty of places where the, where the pendulum is swinging the other day, so the other way. So in the 70s, Sudan was essentially placid and calm, and wasn't really an adventure location type thing. Uh, but now, if you did a ride around Sudan, it would be pretty exciting, actually. There's, you know, there's a lot happening. Uh, it's turbulent. There's, you know, it's newly divided. So. I don't mean to say go to the most dangerous countries in the world, but I must admit, I'd, I would love to... I mean, like, I've, just, I've just come back from Iran, and my wife has just been motorcycling around Iran on her own. And then I went out and joined her for a week. So most people don't go motorcycling around Iran. Uh, and, they'd, of course, they'd be wrong to, because it's one of the great de uh, travel destinations in the world. Possibly, they're possibly, literally, scientifically, empirically, measurably, the most gorgeous people on this planet. I hate to say this, but Iranian people are nicer than us. They're kinder, they're more genuine, they're more spontaneous, they, they have a love of life which is almost extinguished uh, with, with us in the West, with our, with our love of, of, of consumerism and everything else. And I'm as guilty as, as the next man. Going to, traveling around Iran and uh, on a motorcycle is very possibly um, the most um, eye-opening and liberating thing that I've ever done.
you know, certainly in the last 10 years. Because, it, because I, you know, I'm 48, and I had an experience that made me totally rethink my, my values. I mean, that's got to be healthy, hasn't it? Yeah, this is Lois you're talking about, right? You were, you were traveling, traveling with Lois. Yeah, well, she 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 went out she went out there. And you can only get a 30 day visa. So Lois rode all around Iran on her own last October, then came back. She left her motorbike out there, and then she um, went out for another 30 day, 30 days to carry on riding around. And I joined her in the Easter holidays from school, from you know in spring break. I joined her for a week. I made a little film about it it's on the internet. I was twice in Iran. Uh, I joined her for a week and then came back to school. And it was fantastic. I envied her so much. You know, I mean, she's got the real, the real story to tell about being a single woman on a motorcycle in Iran. That was fantastic. And she had an absolutely brilliant experience. Let's talk uh, uh, for a little bit about uh, Mondo Sahara. Give me an idea, an overview of that trip. Okay, so the Mondo Sahara project um, had two very strong leading motivations. One, I was... Um, uh, when I'm attending trade fairs or stuff like that, or motorcycle events, a lot of people come up to me, you've seen some of my films, and say, oh, I'd like to do something like that, but I haven't got the time. And I think that's not true. You, you have got the time, you're just choosing to spend it doing something else. Invariably, it would appear, carrying on working, uh, rather weirdly. <laughs> um, and then the other thing was that with the kind of um, escalation of events uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq and the the Anglo-American military adventure in Iraq and the disaster that we've wrought there and the, uh, the you know, the one now we're seeing, you know, that, that chicken coming home to roost with, with the, um, the ISIS group taking over and, and just the, the, the chaos of, of Anglo-European imperialism in the Middle East. There's been a huge kind of um, you know, anti-Islamic backlash in Britain. And we've got several, you know, big, well-established um, Islamic communities in Britain, Muslim communities, whole towns, actually, whole towns taken over, uh, which, never, which for years was never a problem, or never that much of a problem, and, and sort of now it is. And, uh, I, and I, as a, somebody who's seen a lot of the world, and certainly been to, I've been to almost every single Muslim country in the world, and um, I became increasingly um, irritated at the narrow-minded, uh, xenophobic, and racist things that people in America and England used to say to me about the Muslim world and about Muslims. And it would, you know, coming from somebody who maybe might be an ex-serviceman who served a bit of time in Saudi Arabia, so he had, you know, he had an angle, he'd been, he'd been there. Um, and I've, I felt there was something really... I, th I felt that we were, we, you know, we'd finished World War II, we'd got rid of the Cold War, and now we'd managed to conjure up a new cultural um, clash, a schism between two different parts of, of the human species. And, uh, and I can't affect, obviously, policy in the White House or in uh, Downing Street in our government, but I thought, well, I can make a film, and I can ride a motorcycle. So I had a plan to, uh, to just get a gang of, of British and American riders and take them into um, the, they took them down to the Islamic Republic of Mauritania, uh, which is a country which both of our governments advise should not be visited because there's out-of-control out of Islamist um, militant groups there uh, and uh, all this sort of stuff. And the, I mean, and the entire country of Mauritania is coloured in red with the highest possible security warning on it uh, in, on our Foreign and Commonwealth Office website. And, and, of course, you've got Morocco above it, which is, of course, another Islamic country. So I thought, um, yeah, let's take a lot of English and American people out to that country and have a motorcycle uh, holiday, uh, almost an adventure, but, uh, a motorcycle holiday, and uh, let's see if uh, these people kidnap us and throw stones at us, or let's see if they are just like us, and, uh, and let's see if we can make friends with them. And I had this ridiculous plan that, um, you know, when some Mauritanian... Uh, policeman or, or shop owner is down the mosque one day and somebody who's radicalized and angry stands up and says, death to America, death to the West. I, I wanted them to say, oh, I, I just met a, hold on to me, I just met a lot of English motorcyclists and Americans, a lot of them were American the other day and they came into my shop, bought a cabbage and an onion or whatever and, and they were fine. They were quite polite actually. 
Um, and they didn't have guns. They had open face helmets, and they just seemed to be dressed in jeans and stuff, and they weren't dressed as spacemen, you know, and they had little bikes that, like, kind of we ride around here, and they didn't have, like, massive machines that looked like they were some, from some kind of paramilitary, Judge Dredd-inspired uh, arresting agency. And uh, and I'd want this Mauritanian Islamic person to say, yeah, I met those English-American people, and they were, they were fine. You know, cool down. They're still jihadists. Cool down. They're, you know, they're just like us. And that's my, that was my fantasy. And, uh, and then the other idea, though, was to do something that hadn't been done before, and that was where we had this... A guy called Richard Kempley went out in a Land Rover and buried a chain of supply dumps on a 1,200-mile route across the desert to Mauritania into the, the center of the Sahara, almost the center of the Sahara, uh, into what they call the empty quarter of the Sahara. And it's called that because there's no humans in it, because there's absolutely no rainfall, so there's no, nothing, there's no wells, nothing can graze or anything like that. And, um, and sure enough, this guy went out with this Land Rover uh, GPS, um, He's, uh, he's basically the English-speaking world's leading expert on that part of the world, and he actually kind of knows his way around. So he did a, a brand-new route for us that no one had ever done before, literally across the sand. And and with all, you know, the, the Bureau of Land Management in America, and I know Canada's obviously got some big wide-open spaces, but but for Europeans, to, to get to a country where you can drive for a 1,000 miles in one direction without hitting any tarmac whatsoever no fences and no human beings of any kind and no no evidence of human existence that's that's quite a big deal for us as englishmen and um and so we did this we got down to mauritania met the guy who buried the stuff he gave us the gps coordinates and we set off into the desert and we and we, and we found the stuff dug it up and that kept us going onto the next supply dump and it was absolutely obviously incredibly exciting incredibly exhilarating and we say you know we're just normal guys school teachers plumbers decorators uh one guy is an it company a bloke runs a shop you know you know a store uh another guy was just um a graphic designer i mean just completely ordinary people and we were having this world-class adventure it was really exciting and no and, and no one had ever done that before so it was pretty cool Austin, I have to ask you about your ideas for motorcycle sizes. Often when I hear your name, it's associated with someone that's extolling the virtues of the small motorcycle versus the big motorcycle, uh, the large adventure bikes. And uh, I'd like to hear more about your, your theory or your idea of what size you think an adventure bike should be. Um, well, it's very simple. Um, the, you know, the big bikes are superb um, if you for some reason need to ride 500 miles in a day, then that would be the, you know, the weapon of choice, obviously. Um, and especially if you had to ride 500 miles a day for five days or something like that, you know, that would be a huge... A, I mean, I've ridden, I've ridden um, 500 miles a day for five days on a DR350, and, it's, and, and, and the days are long, and it's boring. You know, I'm sure that, that experience would have been much, much more comfortable on... A, um, a GS 1200 that would have just, you know, um, lapped up the miles. But um, for whatever reason, my my life path has ended up with me doing um, some quite long trips around the world uh, that inevitably um, start to unravel when you get off the pavement, off the asphalt, and onto a dirt track, and then the dirt track disintegrates and turns into something else. And then, uh, that, you know, that's just like a streak of mud or across a field or whatever. And um, it became, it's become clearer and clearer to me as I've done more and more long trips and more miles that um, those, uh, well, I'll phrase it like this. If, if, you, if a student sat down and looked at all the things I'd done, they couldn't have been done on, on a bike with the word adventure in its name. Mm-hmm. It's a simple, that's a, just a fact. Unless you were maybe some kind of, if you were six foot five, and and some kind of world class, you know, athlete, but a normal person like me who's five foot ten and is not strong or determined, or and has no skill, all I can do is, you know, I can operate a clutch and a throttle, but I certainly can't do anything. I can't do a wheelie. I can't, you know, I can't do a jump on a motocross circuit or anything. I'm just a normal street rider, like everyone else. Um, I, yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't have done what I've done on on those big bikes. So I get, 
I feel that the industry and the and the press, you know, the motorcycle press industry are are not are not helping the cause of adventure motorcycling by encouraging people to buy those machines, which of course when they buy them they will find out very quickly that they are hugely limited in what they can do. So I think one of the things that uh, Jim Hyde's done very cleverly with his Royal Hard Adventures is, is he realised that there were a huge amount of people buying these huge, heavy, expensive motorbikes, uh, and and these people wanted to do something exciting. If they had that, enough money to afford a motorbike like that, one can, I think, safely imagine that they were probably quite successful professionally. They might have worked very hard. They might have worked for a long time and wanted to do something else. And they want to have an adventure. Who wouldn't want to have an adventure? And so if you say to somebody, oh, don't, don't worry, you know, you've got the right, you've bought the right bike, I'm going to show you how to use it. They're going to think, oh, that sounds great. I love this guy. You know, he's, he's, like, a, he's like the wizard. He's like the doctor. He's got all the, you know, he'll make, he'll, he's got all the pills I need. And, and then, it, you know, it's, and then it, so it's obviously in North America in particular, adventure motorcycling has gone off in this new direction, which is people on giant bikes going, you know, on small road trips with a bit of camping thrown in sort of thing, which is, which is fine. You know, you know, far be it for me to tell someone they're not allowed to go on a holiday. I mean, that's, that's, that's fantastic that people enjoy themselves on motorbikes. But the fact of the matter is, is that you'll never go on a, you know, what I might call a proper serious round-the-world motorcycle trip and come back, and when people say, how did it go, you'll never hear anybody say, it was fine, but I wish my bike had been bigger. You can search all the blogs you like, and you're never going to find anyone who said that. But you will, of course, you know what I'm going to say. You'll find plenty of people who said, that you said the opposite. And then the next thing, the next kind of step, is that actually, it's, it's obvious to me that, that what you want is a bicycle with the power of a BMW um, GS1200. So you want something you can lift up above your head and walk through a river with it above your heads, but which when you get on it, will whiz you along at 100 miles an hour. That's the dream, isn't it? Now, because that doesn't exist, everything else, in the, when you line up all the motorcycles in the world that you could possibly take on a trip, there's going to be some kind of compromise. And you've got to choose where you want to be on that scale. But one thing you know about the bicycle, you know, the high-powered bicycle analogy, one thing you know that's true is that the cyclist can go any, pretty much anywhere. You you must have been on a trip somewhere and you came across and you're on your bike, whatever bike it is, and you meet a cyclist and he's just done something that you know you can't do. So, I mean, so because it's because you're on a machine, you're on a machine that's just too big, heavy or whatever it is, you know, it just seems obvious that if you really do want adventure, if you really do want to do something unusual, if you really want to have an experience that, that you know is truly unique and you're not just kidding yourself. Then you've got, then you've got to be pushing yourself towards the smallest, lightest motorbike that your pride will allow you to be seen on. I like that. It's as simple as that. There's a whole theory. I think someone's written a, someone's written a doctorate about what motorcycles would be sold if the CC of the engine was not allowed to be written on the outside of it. It's as simple as that. So there's there's that you know there's that thing as well. But there's uh, I worry that there's a certain kind of person who wants to be, who wants to turn up somewhere outside of Denny's or whatever it is, and they want to be they want people to be able to tell what who they are and what they're into from the machine that they're riding and the clothes that they're wearing and the accessories that they've purchased. And that's fine, you know. The Harley Davidson community have been doing that for years, haven't they? That's that, that's all they do, actually, isn't it? Just accessorise. And 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 show off and look here. Look at my shiny stuff and my tassels on my jacket and look at my tattoo or whatever it is. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, it's it's all about look at me. It's they're you know they're the peacocks of the of the motorcycle world. And I'd like to think that adventure motorcycling are the people who are much much more interested in what what they are doing and what they've done and what they're going to do, rather than, uh, uh, rather than anything to do with what they own. So I, I put it to you that um, if you were going to line up all the, um, if, you, if you could kind of like uh, get all the most respected uh, motorcycle travel people, or dare I say it, adventure motorcycle people in the world, the people who've done the most incredible trips and lined them all up standing next to their bikes, you'd be shocked to find out 
what they were riding because the people who are, who are kind of doing cutting-edge stuff are not doing it on 1,200cc machines or 990 machines. They're doing it on... And it's getting smaller all the time. The, you know, people are, people are, and, uh, are definitely gravitating, you know, after the kind of long way around explosion and, you know, you've got this these amazing bikes on TV with the most handsome man in the world buying one. I mean, why wouldn't someone go out and buy one? Why wouldn't they, you know? You've seen the pictures of Stephen Queen on a Triumph. I mean, do you look any cooler? You've seen the pictures of Clint Eastwood on a, on a Triumph Bonneville in Coogan's Bluff. There's a picture of Clint Eastwood on a Norton during the filming of Kelly's Heroes. He looks like the coolest bike in the world because he's on it. You know, why wouldn't... I mean, you'd be mad not to go and buy one <laughs> for that reason alone. But once that, once that kind of dust settled... Uh, the fact of the matter is that people are realizing that, the, you know, the, if you want to do something really cool, you need to have as little stuff as possible. You need, the, the, you know, hardly any luggage, hardly any clothes, hardly any tools. And that, of that thinking obviously extends to the motorbike. And the final bit of just cold scientific logic is that you get someone like Ed March, Ed March has just motorcycled um, back from Mongolia on his Honda C90, 90cc, seven-horsepower machine. He rode it from Malaysia back to London. He's just about to, in, literally in two weeks, I'll get him to drop by on you and do a live show. He's just, he's just about to ride his C90 moped, uh, and his girlfriend's got one from Alaska to, to the bottom of Chile. Yeah. So 90cc. 90cc, and it cost him $200. And he is, he, that is a man who's going everywhere and doing stuff and, uh, and making stuff count. The crucial thing is, is that the amount of metal and uh, cylinder chamber capacity you need to move a human being forward at a reasonable speed of, let's say, 45 miles an hour is, you know, what is 50cc. Now, everything, everything above that that your bike has got... I, I put it to you, is essentially superfluous. And it's, and it's there for either for, 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 for frivolous reasons, like, oh, I want to go 140 miles an hour, or I want to, uh, I want to cruise at 85 all day. Now, long-distance motorcycle travel is, if nothing else, is absolutely unconnected to going as fast as you can. It's all about being there, traveling across a country, across a continent, it's all about absorbing everything. Uh, you're almost certainly, if you're in a true adventure motorcycle location, going to be in a, in a place where traveling more than 50 miles an hour on their roads is going to be hazardous and, and, and fraught with peril because of different driving styles that you're not used to. Every, you know, I mean, it's, it's obvious that everything above 50cc is, is a waste. You know, it's just unnecessary. So that's the, that's the, um, that's the kind of physics and the science behind it. If you needed a 500cc bike to, to move a man in a sleeping bag and a two-wheel forward, then I'd be riding. I'd say the smallest bike you can have is a 500cc, but it's not. It's 50cc. I mean, it's as simple as that. You know, when Ted Simon went around the world in 1974, he rode a 500cc Triumph. Now they made a 750, but he turned it down. He said, "No, the 500 is fine." That's a crucial thought, and the and, and I'll I'll leave the last word with him. When you asked Ted Simon the question about what does he think of these like colossal machines now that have been called adventure bikes, he says, well, I say you can, you can buy whatever you want. It's a free country. But those, those big machines are in no way built to a human scale. They've been, they've been dreamt up by a designer, by a marketer, by a sales department, by a focus group, whatever. But they haven't been dreamt up by somebody... Who's, who sat down and said, okay, let's get, let's get the 10 top adventure motorcyclists in the world in a room and get them to design a bike. And then they came up with the GS1200. Mm -hmm. Do me a favor. I have one more question for you. I just wanted to see if you had uh, so just a couple of quick tips for riders that are planning adventures now. Oh, crikey. Well, I think I might have said it already, but if you're planning an adventure, um, there'll be somebody somewhere. It might be your boss or your parents. Hopefully it's not your wife or your husband. Um, telling you that it's dangerous and you shouldn't do it, or are you sure you want to do that? They, um, one thing I know for a fact is that anybody who says to you, you shouldn't be doing that, or you should think twice about it, has definitely not done it. So you must ignore them. Um, they don't know what they're talking about, and why they're you know, discouraging you is, a, is another story in itself. It might be jealousy, but it's just basic, normal, Western ignorance. <laughs> 
So the main thing is, if you're planning a trip, you, uh, if you're 50, if you're planning a trip, you don't need to listen to me. Um, if you think you're planning a trip, you must listen to me because you must do it. Uh, and you'll never, ever regret it. You won't. You could search the internet. You will not find somebody who's done a six-month proper, slightly difficult long-distance motorcycle trip to a funny country that ends in Stan or is full of um, people whose holy book is different from yours. You'll never find somebody who's done that who writes, I wish I'd never left. Well, there is one person I can think of, actually, but uh, <laughs> he's, disgraced, he's disgraced himself, actually, by, by saying that. But I, won't, I can't give any more details because I would have to reveal who he was. Um, <laughs> and he's a poorer man for it. So, yes, the main advice is you must go. The second advice is less is more. Um, try, try, to, try to take the smallest bite you can, um, and uh, you'll have loads more fun. You'll end up in funny little places that the big bikes won't be able to get to. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that it, you know, that it's just cheaper. And my brother has a great catchphrase. He says, "If you want to buy a big adventure bike, knock yourself out, but don't buy one and then look me in the eye and say I can't afford to go around the world on a motorcycle because you've just blown the entire budget of the trip on the bike that you, that's the wrong bike. So buy buy that big adventure bike when you get back and use it to whiz from whatever it is, Edmonton to to." on to Toronto or from San Diego to, to Chicago. They'd brilliant, be brilliant for that. That's why I would, you know, I'd buy one tomorrow if I was doing trips like that on asphalt. But um, get a cheap bike, some cheap gear, um, and go somewhere that uh, you've never heard of. And, uh, and go somewhere that your government discourages you from going to. That's a pretty good start. Well, thanks very much, Austin. Uh, it's been fun, and uh, we'll have to do it again. I know I have to let you go here because I realize that you're you're still hiding from your headmaster, and um, hopefully everything works out okay on your end. Ridiculous. I'm sitting here surrounded by my math books I have to mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, you, you know, you can pull it off. Uh, okay, Jim, all the rest to you. And we've been speaking with Austin Vince. And if you'd like to see more information about Austin, which I'm sure you do, uh, go to his website at austinvince.com pretty easy to find but you're gonna like his website actually just to go and check it out yeah i, I won't spoil it for you I'll let you go and, and have a look at it hey stick around because coming up next we're gonna get some off-road riding tips from dylan jones and dylan heads up the yamaha off-road experience which is the official yamaha um, off-road training ground in the uk so um stick around and have a let's go While we're staying across the pond in the UK, we'll be talk with Dylan Jones from the Yamaha Off-Road Experience. Now, Dylan is the youngest of the Jones family, and he's uh, now apparently one of the main instructors there. But um, he has a lot of racing experience and a lot of bike riding experience, probably his entire life. He's also represented Great Britain at the International Six-Day Enduro, both at a junior and a senior level, winning uh, four gold and, and three silver ISDE medals. So he's, he's definitely a, a fully qualified coach. But Talked to Dylan about the Yamaha off-road experience in Wales, as well as he gave us some tips. It was very apparent when I called him that it was a family-owned operation because um, his mother had answered. Hold on a minute. I'll just go and see if he's still here. Hold on. And then I finally got through to Dylan. I'm uh, Dylan Jones. From uh, We're located in uh, mid-Wales in the United Kingdom, near a little town called San Idlis. Um, we run the Yamaha Off-Road Experience, which uh, we sort of specialize in, in running off-road courses um, for all ability from people who've never ridden off-road at all before through to people who ride national-level competition stuff. Um, and then we also do some uh, adventure bike training for guys uh, on, on the bigger adventure bikes um, who may be looking to go and do, do trips or, or just sort of improve on their, on their riding skills. As far as adventure bikes, when you're doing adventure bike training there, what type of bike are you using? We're, we're obviously using the Yamahas. Um, the, we use the 660 Tenere uh, and the 1200 Super Tenere. So we've got obviously a, a lighter mid-weight sort of adventure bike. And then obviously the, the Super Tenere is, you know, a big, big heavyweight uh, bike really. But um, they're both, you know, really, really capable bikes. Obviously the 660 is a little bit lighter and smaller, so it's a bit more capable 
off road. Um, but the, the Tenere, the Super Tenere, you know, it's, it's reasonably capable. We change the tyres so that we're running a, a more sort of off road biased tyre than, than comes standard on the bikes um, because we're using them off road more than we use them, I suppose, on, on the road. Um, so again that's something for people to consider um is if they're gonna if they think they'll be encountering quite a lot of off-road then they need to have maybe a more off-road biased tire than that comes than comes on their bike really dylan what skills do you think riders should be practicing before they head off on an adventure um my, my, it's like anybody who's planning maybe going on an adventure that's going to involve, you know, riding, you know, some off-road, is it, is to try and get some experience before going, um, because then obviously it gives you sort of your, you know, some preparation for what you may be going to going to uh, come across when you when you're out out and about. Um, I suppose in. <laughs> In tips, really, uh, number one I would say is uh, is looking ahead. Uh, it's very, very important, you know, to be looking a long way ahead to see all the, you know, the the obstacles are coming up in plenty of time, so you can make the right decision, slow down, go one way or, or the other. Um, then again, braking. You know, when you when you're braking. Uh, on gravel, loose dirt, it's very important to use the brakes um, when the bike is going, you know, in, a, in an upright sort of position. When you're not turning or leaning into the corner, it's very, very important not to brake as you turn because that's what makes the, the wheels, you know, go from go from underneath you. And then the, the other thing really is, is uh, standing up, I would say. Standing up when you're riding on the on the dirt is uh, is a is a more comfortable and safer um, position to be riding in when you're riding on on the rougher sort of stuff. Really, what's the some of the most common mistakes you see people coming with? I mean, I'm sure people arrive with their own bad habits with you all the time, and those ones you have to break. What are those common mistakes beginners um, are making when they come out? Common mistakes, I suppose, really, are that people tend to, to try and they sit too far back on, on the seats. Um, some bikes, obviously, they don't allow you, you to do that. But uh, when we get people who are new to it, they, they sort of r- want to ride at this arm's length position, which takes them a long way back on the seat. Um, when you're riding on the, on, the, on the gravel and things, it's important to sit, sit forward on the seat um, so that you're getting some weight onto the front end, so the front end is nice and planted on the tracks, and so the bike steers and turns better. If you sit a long way back, it doesn't want to steer and turn around the corners as well, um, and it makes the front end more um, sort of vague in that it bounces and deflects off the off the rocks and the stones more more if you if you tend to sit too far back. And then again, using the brakes. It's common for people who are using, uh, you know, using who are new to it to maybe not use the brakes correctly. Uh, as I said, it's very important to use the brakes when the bike's going in a straight line, upright position. Lots of people tend to uh, brake as they go to turn in on the corner, and obviously if you've got the front brake on as you go to turn into the corner on loose gravel, the front wheel will wash, wash from underneath you, and uh, you'll end up on the floor. So sitting forward on the seat, uh, clearly very important, transferring the weight or adding the weight to that front wheel. Uh, what other things can we do while cornering with our adventure bikes um, to increase stability? For example, um, when you're cornering you know, on a road sort of bike, you tend to lean your body weight with the bike. When you're riding on, a, on an adventure or a dirt bike off-road, you tend to lean the bike down under but keep your body weight in, a, in an upright position, pushing some weight directly into the tires. What's your thought process as far as tires for the adventure bike? Um, again, it, it depends really on the proportion of road to, to sort of off-road riding you're going to be doing, really. Um, the, the knobbly tires obviously work a lot better off-road, but they're not quite as good on the road, um, and you won't get the same um, sort of mileage out of them before they before they wear out. Um, so, it, it, you know, it very much depends how much sort of off-road riding you, you're going to be doing. Um, but, you know, sort of uh, probably if you're, if you're riding with the, the knobbly type tires, you're probably only going to be looking at possibly getting a couple of thousand miles out of, uh, out of certainly out of the rear tire, and then it's going to need, need replacing, whereas obviously with, with a, like the standard type tire, you'll probably get you know, double, at least double that uh, mileage on them, but they won't work anywhere near as good off-road. Thanks very much, Dylan. That's some great tips for this week's Adventure Rider Radio. You're welcome. 
Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. We've been speaking with Dylan Jones from the Yamaha Off-Road Experience in the UK. And you can find out more about the Yamaha Off-Road Experience at yamaha-offroad-experience.co.uk. And check our website for links in the show notes. Well, that wraps up another Adventure Rider Radio for this week. And we'd like to thank Austin Vince for the use of the Mondo Enduro soundtrack. By the way, great flick. You got to go check it out. Now, don't forget, we want your feedback. So if you got any ideas for the show, anything at all, send us an email. We'd love to hear from you about it. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. Ride safe. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hello there, listeners. My name is Austin Vince. I'm speaking to you from London, England. This is Adventure Rider Radio. This is Dave Barr, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This is Dr. Gregory Frazier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey, this is Renee Cormier, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This is Richard Dreams uh, from Trail Quest, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm uh, Dylan Jones from the Yamaha Offroad Experience, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.